0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts chapter 7. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Sheshem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Sheshem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons.
1: Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush when moses saw it he was amazed at the sight and as he drew near to look there came the voice of the lord i am the god of your fathers the god of abraham and of isaac and of jacob and moses trembled and did not dare to look then the lord said to him take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground i have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter
2: 6 before, if you'll recall, we, we've already read uh, Stephen's speech before the Jewish council. So what I would like to do is to read for you what happened before that and what happened after that, and then we will get into the sermon. So I'm going to begin reading today in Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they strictly instigated, secretly instigated men who said, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen speaks, delivers his speech, which we'll consider in a moment. And then after he delivers his speech, we'll pick it up in chapter 7, verse 54. He says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of these words, these most magnificent words that you have kept for us throughout the generations are bound up as in an alabaster jar, and if you don't break it open, none of us will smell the beauty and the fragrance of what you have done for us. So, this is what we ask, we need it, and if you don't visit us by your spirit, then all of this will fall to the ground. But we know that you have promised that you will never let your people fall to the ground. So we dedicate this time to you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Okay, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And what we've seen in this book is that the birth of the church, I mean, okay, the birth of the church is happening here just as it is happening today in Brazil, as we just saw. And What we've been saying is that the church exists in this world to do something specific. The church exists to do one thing that no other entity in the world can do or will do. The Church does not exist for example, just to care for the poor and the marginalized there's I mean we do exist for that but but not only for that there 's lots of other organizations in this world uh, that are not Christian um, that don't have nothing to do with the church that care for the poor and the marginalized, and in some cases they do a much better job than the church does so we don 't exist mainly for that we don 't exist mainly to create a community among people. You could go be a Muslim if that 's what you wanted you could Join a book club if that's what, you, I'm not suggesting these things, just so you know. You, if that's what you wanted, that's, there, there's many places for that. The church does not only exist or exclusively exist for the purpose of creating a community of people. The one thing that the church exists for, and we've been seeing this in Acts, the one thing that God has given the church to do that is so unique that if she doesn't do it, no one else will, is this. To bear witness to the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. If we don't do that, no one will. Now, the world in which this church is situated, not only this one, but the church in all times, the world in which the church is situated is never taken kindly to that witness because The witness is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if that bare fact is true, then that fact takes every other fact in the world and calls it into submission to itself. And so it's never been a popular message. And we've seen how the religious establishment in Jerusalem in the book of Acts has tried to squash this message uh, over the course of a few chapters. And today we're considering the trial of Stephen. And this trial is the climax of the trials in Jerusalem. We've seen three so far, I don't know if you remember. Uh, the first one was Peter and John, uh, and they were brought before the council and told to stop preaching, and they basically got their hands slapped and said, you know, they told him to go away. Um, they kept preaching, they brought him back in again, and this time they flogged them. And here we get to Stephen, and in this case, uh, he will give his life for the sake of the witness of Jesus. Now, one of the things we've been encouraging during this whole series is to, for all of us, to take up the witness that belongs to each of us and to us collectively as a people in the places that we find ourselves throughout the week. And I bet at least somebody (laughs) has raised their eyebrows, um, at least internally, saying, "I I didn't know we were that kind of church. And the truth is, We're not, which is why we have to be reminded that this belongs to us and that nobody else is going to do it. So what I'd like to do today is simple. I'd just like to show you from this text two things. Number one, how Stephen gave his witness, how he did it. And then number two, where Stephen got his power for witness. First of all, how Stephen gave his witness. And secondly, where Stephen got his power for witness. Okay, first, how Stephen gave his witness. Let's begin by looking at the content of Stephen's witness. What did he actually say? Well, his accusers bring two charges against him. Number one, that this man blasphemes against Moses and God. The second accusation is that he is speaking of destroying the Holy Temple. Now, just, I mean, I wish I had time to develop all of this. I'm going to have to come in and out and deal with some things and not with others but Stephen's trial and his death are almost spot on exactly like the trial of his Lord. I I don't know if you noticed that or not. And that's all I can say about it. Okay, there it is. Now, um, now we're told explicitly that the people who are bringing these charges against him are false witnesses. So it's hard to know if these actually, if these charges actually reflect what Stephen was actually saying or whether these are trumped up charges, but It doesn't really matter because Stephen actually answers these charges with great clarity and wisdom. So let's hit the highlights. So his answer to the first charge, namely that he blasphemes against Moses and against God, is as follows. He tells the story of God's chosen people in Israel. Now remember, he says, how Abraham, God chose him, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and sent him on a journey. He said, go from your home and inherit this land that I have for you. And so he does. And then Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob who became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And that's how you get the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And so Stephen says to all the people with him that God, by his own choosing, by his own wisdom, has established his covenant people. But here's where it gets interesting. Next, Stephen mentions Joseph whom God raised up and sent to deliver his people from starvation and death. You'll remember that God sent him down to Egypt and uh, he he was in jail, but then he became a really high-ranking member member in Pharaoh's uh, administration and he was wise in how he handled the grain situation there and and saved God's people from their starvation. And what's interesting is that Stephen just mentions briefly, I don't know if you remember it, he just mentions briefly that Joseph's brothers rejected him. You remember, he had his dreams, and they said, who is this dreamer? And they sold him into slavery, and that's how he gets to Egypt in the first place. So we get the beginning of a division that he's going to tease out for the rest of the speech. He says, God had a man, a deliverer, for his people here. And then his people, the 12 patriarchs, or the 11, rejected him. Okay, so there's a separation. Okay, let's keep going. After Stephen, excuse me, after Joseph, Stephen then goes on to Moses, and he spends a little bit more time here, and he develops this theme of God's deliverer being rejected by the people. I want to emphasize uh, verses uh, 23 through 29 in chapter 7. He says, talking of Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now listen, verse 25. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, listen again, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. So God sent a deliverer to his people and the people rejected the deliverer. So Moses flees and he lives in the wilderness for 40 years. And one day... God calls to Moses out of the midst of a burning bush. And the Lord told him that he has heard the groaning of his people in the house of slavery in Egypt. And this is what he says. This is Stephen's version of it in Acts 7.34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I, says the Lord, will send you... To Egypt. So God sends Moses to deliver his people. And he did so, if you'll remember, by the mighty power of God plagues and miracles. And Moses led them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, at which place he received the law of God for the people. And all should have been well. God was caring for them in the wilderness. But, Stephen tells us in verse 39 our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't, we don't even know what has become of him. Here we have it again. God sends a deliverer to his people, and the people reject the deliverer. And this continues after Moses, every one of God's prophets whom he sent to call his people in re- to, to repentance from their idolatry, the people reject the prophets. God sends a deliverer to save his people and the people reject the deliverer. It's like a refrain over and over and over again throughout the history of Israel. And Stephen is saying this to the Jewish council. And at this point, I have to imagine that the members of that council were probably thinking, yeah, that's true. But thank God we're not like our fathers. We're over here with Moses. But Moses said, verse 37 from Stephen's speech, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, of course, this refers to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ was the prophet to whom every other prophet was pointing. And Jesus, God sent the greatest deliverer of all to his people, the one who would save his people from their sins by, by his mighty work on the cross. And he was rejected by the Jews at every point. In fact, they hated him so much that they falsely accused him and sent him to his death with the same charges that we just saw with Stephen. And it was these very people to whom Stephen was speaking that rejected Jesus, the one whom God sent to deliver his people. So this is Stephen's answer to the first charge about blaspheming against Moses. And there's a bit more to it, but I'm going to save that for a moment. So hold on to that one for a sec. Um, Now let's get to the second accusation, namely, that he has been speaking of destroying the temple. Second charge. The answer to this one is much briefer, and we see it in verses 44 to 50. Stephen tells about how the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, wandering, going to the promised land, that God gave them a pattern for a place of meeting called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, uh, God would meet with them. And then later, the tabernacle, um, the form of the tabernacle was transferred into a permanent structure by Solomon called the temple. And in both the tabernacle and the temple, there was a place right in the middle called the most holy place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant in which uh, God decided to dwell among his people on the earth. The centralized, localized presence of God on the earth, okay? Now, because God had chosen to dwell in that precise location, it was tempting. Listen, it was tempting for God's people to think God lives here. On this spot. If they had GPS coordinates, they could have, you know, given you the numbers. And right here. This is where God lives. But what Stephen says. He quotes here uh, in verse 48 through 50, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So Stephen's response to the second charge is that the temple is marvelous, no doubt, but don't be fooled. God does not dwell in houses made by hands. He is simply too magnificent for that. Okay, there's more to this also, but it, we're going to hold it for a second. Uh, and we get to the point now where, Steve, where, the, where the tables turn. Stephen, who has been the accused, steps on the other side and becomes the accuser this is unbelievable. Okay. Watch. Um, He's the defendant and now he becomes the prosecutor starting in verse 51. If, okay. Maybe if we were in a synagogue, like a long time ago, I don't know that I could actually say these words out loud. It would be so indecent. Just so you know, like these, these words almost mean nothing to us. We, we could tell they're fighting words, but they don't mean anything to us like they would have meant to them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All right, there's so much here. Let me say briefly. First of all, he calls them stiff-necked. It was about the worst insults you could speak against another Jew. You've got to think of a farm animal who resisted to submit, or or stiffened its neck and resisted, uh, would not submit its neck to the yoke that the farmer was trying to put upon it. All through the prophets, God calls his people stiff-necked, which is almost a cipher for saying, you idolatrous people, you're stiff-necked, you refuse to submit to the law of God. You refuse to walk in my ways. You refuse to leave your gods, your stiff necks. Second, he calls them uncircumcised in heart and in ears. Now, circumcision was, of course, given to Abraham in covenant form, which is to say this is the physical sign and boundary between those who are inside of God's covenant, and those who are outside of God's covenant. If you are circumcised, you're in. If you're uncircumcised, you're out. And he says to the Jewish council, uncircumcised. (laughs) You're not even in the people of God. Essentially what Stephen is saying is, you thought you were over here with Moses, that you were not like your fathers, but you you are the very people who reject Moses and all the deliverers that God sent to you. You're not over here. You're over here with those people. You're not even, and and you're uncircumcised. You're not even, you don't even belong to the covenant people. And by the way, just so you know, Jesus Christ himself is the temple. Yes, God does not dwell, and I mean, it was a marvelous thing that he dwelt among us for a time in this place. But now, Christ has come. He said, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. But the temple he was speaking of was the temple of his body. You see, the temple was the place where people go to worship. The temple was the place where heaven and earth came to meet and interlock. And Jesus came and said, I am now the place you come to worship. I am now the place where heaven and earth meet and interlock. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the temple. And not surprisingly... When they heard this from Stephen, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Okay, that is how Stephen responded. That was the content of his witness. And I mean, it's powerful. Now my question is, Where does he get this power? How did he do this? And we see it in this passage. Um, And uh, part of the reason why I want to do this is because, let's be honest, um, many of us feel powerless when it comes to our own witness to Christ's resurrection. It's not that we don't want to. I mean, to know Jesus is to be astonished by his beauty and his humiliation, and his death, and his resurrection, especially what he did on our behalf. And in fact, you saw the thing that Bruno did in the birth of the church. You saw that. Didn't you, didn't something happen inside of you? Like, oh, I want to do that. That is the thing that's worth living for, to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to see fruit. Like, you want that. As a Christian, you want that maybe more than anything. But but, um, I think that many of us, if you're anything like me, uh, even though you want to do it, our fear is more powerful than our desire. And maybe that fear is actually even based in reality because um, you actually one time did say to another person, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? And it was a bumbling, inarticulate mess. So how did Stephen get his power? Because wouldn't you like to say it like Stephen did? It, as far as we know, he didn't like sit at home for 40 hours and prepare this thing and he have his notes. He just, pff, wouldn't you love that? Okay, I'm going to show you. Verses 55 to 56, he says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you've ever come into contact with this passage before, you know that in every other place in the Bible where it talks about Christ being at God's right hand, it says that he is seated at Christ's right hand. This is the only place in the whole New Testament where it says that Christ is standing at God's right hand. So what's going on here? Well, some people say Christ is standing in appreciation of Stephen and it's like giving a standing ovation kind of thing, which is kind of sentimental, kind of schmaltzy. It doesn't really do justice to what's actually going on here in the text. Um, What's really going on here? Think of the context, okay? Stephen is in a court of law. The whole thing is a trial. The council has brought charges against Stephen and he is defending himself. And if you look at the Jewish... Legal procedures of that day, it was customary for witnesses listen, listen, oh. It was customary for witnesses to stand to deliver their address. So by implication, what we see here is astonishing. As Stephen is witnessing to the faithfulness of Christ before the council. Jesus himself stands to witness to the Father about the faithfulness of his witness, Stephen. So where did Stephen get his power? Because he knew, even before he saw Christ standing, that as he advocated for Christ, Christ was advocating for him. I mean, didn't Jesus even made this promise, if you'll recall, back in Luke chapter 12. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of god and when you bring excuse me and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say so here is the promise we have listen listen here's the promise we have that whenever we open our mouths To witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have an advocate before the Father, and He will empower us by His Spirit to know exactly what to say in that situation. That's the promise. But some people will say, that is not my experience, all right? Like, this sounds nice, I mean, we, let's, okay, we're Christians, we believe, what the, but that sounds nice. But if you've ever tried before, that, it does not sound like Stephen, it does not. Whenever I open my mouth, like maybe somebody will say it, whenever I open my mouth to witness, it does not resemble that kind of eloquence. It actually more resembles the eloquence of somebody who's walking along a sidewalk and doesn't realize there's a curb and they step down. It kind of looks like that, like verbally it doesn't it's not powerful it's it's bumbling it's trembling it's stumbling all over the place and my answer to you is this either Christ is advocating for us or he's a liar either in that moment when it feels like weakness powerlessness. Either he's advocating for us in that moment of witness, or he is a liar. And if in the moment we open our mouths, we sound like some kind of bumbling idiot, then I must conclude that such a witness is what was needed in that moment. Okay? So do you know where I get that? I'm not, this is not my opinion. I get that from the apostle Paul, who we can't deal with he's there. Oh, it's beautiful. But um, he was at Stephen's trial. He was Saul at that point. still Jewish and you know, not, um, not a Christian yet. But when Paul came to Corinth to preach, uh, which was a Greek city, um, when he came to witness to the resurrection of Christ, he was preaching to Greeks who valued wisdom and um, rhetorical skill above all else. But Paul exhibited none of these things. In his witness to Christ, listen to how he says it. First Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five, he says, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here it is, I was with you in weakness and in fear. And in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when Jesus says he is advocating for you, he is advocating for you. And if the Spirit, and and what the Spirit teaches you to say in that moment, if that sounds like so much bumbling and you look like a fool, then it's not a sign that you lack power for witness, but a sign that the power for witness was precisely your weakness. Now, the result of Stephen's witness was his glorious death Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The words on Stephen's mouth as he dies are almost verbatim the words that Jesus spoke on his own death. Stephen learned how to die from his Lord. And here's what we learned from the death of Stephen, that the testimony of Christ's resurrection is worth dying for. And if something is worth dying for, it is worth living for. So let us live to proclaim the testimony of Christ and all of his beauty, because through his atoning death and resurrection, he always advocates for us. Amen. Amen. Now we come to the table and um, briefly, we don't have to wonder if Christ really advocates for us because every week we come and we see that there is a physical sign that he indeed still sits at the right hand of God advocating for his people If we don't bring the witness, no one else will. And the power we get is by this bread and this cup. Now, in this table, Christ says two things for us, two things to us. He says, come, number one. He says, come to all of those who earnestly repent of their sins and want to sup with the Lord Jesus. He says, come, have your seat at my table. That's the first thing he says in this table. But the second thing he says is go. We don't come to this table to sit here and never leave. We come to this table to be empowered to go, to, to take the witness of Christ's death and resurrection and proclaim it to the world. So let us pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you for Stephen there's something about somebody giving their life away for the gospel that helps us um, organize our own desires, that helps us to um, long for the announcement of the kingdom of God and the flourishing of the church for new life to occur in people as a result of our witness. Now, Father, you know, many of us in here are not, do, do not feel powerful for witness, But you grant us, would you grant us the grace to see Christ advocating on our behalf so that we may go out in weakness so that your power might be plain to the people in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. All God's people, come. Come.